0: Uh, No story for you this morning. We're going to jump right in uh, to our gospel text. It is a story from Jesus. And I try to point out again and again that Jesus isn't just God in human flesh. He's like the greatest human being ever, right? Um, And he was a masterful storyteller. And he accomplished a lot through stories. I mean, he is so. Contrary to what we think about teaching, Jesus did so much teaching through stories and through questions. Uh, he's just so fascinating. And his stories spark imaginations for thousands of years. I mean, we're going to look at a, a tiny little story, just a few verses. Jesus told 2,000 years ago, and I'm talking about it, and you're already interested. In what do you say? Even if you think about our stream, our tradition of Protestantism, Martin Luther really was kind of the spearhead of that. And Luther said this was one of his favorite passages. Martin Luther said this is an extraordinary masterpiece of exalted theology. In fact, as I was reading, Martin Luther did at least 13 sermons on this text that we're going to look at today. Now, I'm telling you all this, one, because it's true. But two, because I want you to be excited about this text because the first thing I'm going to ask you to do, you're not going to want (laughs) to do. I want you to be really interested in this exalted masterpiece of theology because I'm going to ask you to get in touch with your inner Pharisee. (laughs) Because I want you to hear the story. And I want you to feel the shock of the story in a way that we won't because we live in a different culture 2,000 years later. And I don't know we talk about our inner pharisee and if you don't know what it is, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know a little bit. But, but, but I know we don't like to. I know it's not fun. And I know our inner pharisee is really, really crafty because some of us don't even know we, have an, we all have an inner pharisee <laughs> And if you don't know that you have an inner pharisee you need to do a little self-reflection because you do. Why do I say all this? Well, verse 9, Luke introduces us to this story, this exalt... I mean, Martin Luther, 13 sermons at least on this passage. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. And Luke says they, they scorned everyone else. They looked around them and, and they, just, they compared themselves to others. We'll see that in the story. And they, and they were kind of condescending when they looked at others. When I'm talking about your inner Pharisee, this is the way we'll talk about it this morning, but, 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 but try to think, because I know it's happened in the last seven days, maybe in the last three hours, of those moments when you are so deeply satisfied with yourself when you compare yourself to someone else. You, you know what I'm talking about. And, it, you know, I even did some reading from, like, a sociologist on some of these emotions. Like, we almost get an adrenaline rush when we, when we get this satisfied with ourselves. So we can actually even fool ourselves into, this is good, because it feels good, because I'm so right. I'm so satisfied with myself. And I was trying to think, I mean, maybe for some of you, when you start comparing yourself or thinking condescendingly, scorning others, maybe that's easy, but, but maybe it's not. But I think it's, it happens all the time because some of the language that's been coming up ever since really, really, well, I don't know if it's new, but it certainly came out in the last election season and probably will come out in the next one, right? These, these categories that we, we are forced into thinking that I think Jesus is always challenging, but these categories of us versus them, I mean, I don't know. You'd have to. We could talk about it, but I think most of the time, anytime you find yourself thinking "I'm the us and they're the them," you're already condescending. They're the them. They're the them because they're not as good as us. They don't see things the way. And so, I mean, just think of the last time you were in an us versus them framework. You were probably in touch with your inner Pharisee, condescendingly, scorning, looking down, someone else, satisfied with yourself, self-righteous. So that's the, I told you, see, if I just started with that instead of Luther, you'd be like, I don't want to hear this. But see, you want to hear it because Luther liked it, right? So. so here's the story. Two men went to the temple to pray. 2,000 years ago, we would say today, two, two men went to church. The same Two men go to the same church to pray. That's the story. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised, despised tax collector. We'll talk about both of these guys. Here's the scenario. Again, short story. The Pharisee stood by himself. This is Jesus' story. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prays this prayer. This is his prayer. <laughs> I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I'm not like those cheaters, those sinners. I'm not like those adulterers, and I'm certainly not like that despised tax collector. And then, and we, we could talk more about this, I, he, he's kind of like, he's so proud of what he does, and, and even, in a sense, it goes above, I don't, I don't just fast on the day of atonement, I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But, but here's this other character, the tax collector, he stood at a distance, and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest, that's not something that People commonly do. It happened a little bit, but it's not common. I mean, this is deep despair. He beat his chest in sorrow. And he said, oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. In fact, the Greek, this is interesting, the Greek says, I am the sinner. I'm the sinner. Be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. And these are the words of Jesus. I tell you, and and this would have been so shocking because people knew what they knew about Pharisees. And I'll talk more about tax collectors in case you're not really informed, though many of you are. But that's why I wanted you to get in touch with your inner Pharisee because I want you to think how shocking it would be for Jesus to say, no, it's the despised person who throws themselves upon the mercy of God who goes home justified. Think about how shocking that is when you're in those moments of self-righteous. I'm just right and I'm satisfied with myself. Jesus says, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. I guarantee you, jaws just drop when they heard that. And then the upside-down nature of the kingdom for those who exalt themselves. You ever exalt yourself in your own mind? If you exalt yourself, God's going to humble you. But if you humble yourself, And God will vindicate you. He will justify you. He will exalt you. There's a story. What a story. 2,000 years ago is still a compelling story. There's no one like Jesus. All right, let's talk about these two guys. We'll lean in a little bit more. The Pharisee. The Pharisee prays a very self-centered prayer, if you can call it a prayer at all. I mean, if you just look at it five times in two verses, he refers to himself. That's an interesting prayer. The Pharisee believes he is better than other people, and he's, turned, he's already turned life into a contest. Life is a game, and he's winning by his rules. <laughs> now, what do I say all the time? Life is not a game to be won. It's a gift to be lived. It's good news. But I also like to tell you that you and I are being formed all the time. You can be formed by the biblical narrative, you can be formed by Jesus, or you can be formed by all the other voices. What are the other voices? Well, it's a nice day yesterday, so what do I do? I go running. I come home, I check the mailbox, I got a letter from my electrical company. Some of you might have this. The very first words on this letter, my energy efficiency report, are literally, Here's how you compare to your neighbors. (laughs) And then, the way it plays out, there's a green bar of my most efficient neighbors. I don't know who these people are, but they exist because my company tells me. And then there's a blue bar that's me. And then I love this. Below me is your average neighbor, (laughs) So I can either read and see, oh, well, I'm not the most efficient neighbor, but surely those are the ones that are like in Florida half the year, right? Like, I don't know these people, but they're more efficient than me. But, but then when I start to feel bad, blah, I'm better than my average. I don't know who the I, walk, I see people walk, are you an average neighbor? Are you the most efficient? I don't know how, I, but I know I'm in the middle somewhere, right? My point is we're being formed all the time to compare ourselves to one another. We all have an inner Pharisee, and it's crafty. Now, the text tells us the Pharisee stands by himself. He, he, consider, he doesn't want to be near the unclean people. He considers himself better. And I also wonder, I mean, even reading other scholarship, like, there is a little, is he praying? And you kind of have to make this decision as you read it. Is he praying to himself, like, just in his head, as we often pray? Or it's also common to pray out loud. And it, and it actually even changes the scenario, and it even adds to some of the, like, Ugh, of the Pharisee. But this happened. I know I've done this. I've tried to repent of this. But as a pastor, it still happens in the church today where the Pharisee is standing apart, but he still sees the tax collector, and it's clearly he's not really praying to God. He's praying to exalt himself, and he, he may just be praying loud enough out the side of his mouth so that the tax collector can hear what he's saying. Have you ever prayed a prayer out loud in a group? But it's not really a prayer. It's an agenda that you have. Your inner Pharisee has taken over, <laughs> and you're preaching a sermon to someone because you're better than them, and they need to know all the good things that you, God, thank you for letting me do this, this, and this. Thank you that I don't do these. That's the other interesting thing of the Pharisees. The Pharisee confesses other people's sins. Hey, God, let's talk about the things that I'm disciplined at. We won't talk about the things that I struggle with. Let's just talk about the things that I'm disciplined at. Oh, there's public. Let's just, uh, I'm great. And God, you're so lucky to have me praying to you. Isn't it awesome that I'm in your camp, God? I'm awesome. And then uh, the subtle thing that we've talked a lot about, and kind of with that, God, you owe me, right? You owe me because I'm so good, right? That's the Pharisee. A few observations from some authors. It, It is interesting that Pharisees don't technically do anything obviously bad. They I mean, that's why Jesus uses them as examples of hypocrisy, uh, whitewashed tombs, he will say. And they do a lot of good. I mean, they do good by upholding the standards of community morality. But one author says this, and I think this is pretty true. But neither are they particularly compelling advertisements for a life overflowing with milk and honey. I mean, it's just kind of true. Like Pharisees, they do a lot of good, but there's something that's just missing, where you're not necessarily like, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that lady. I mean, there's just something missing. Jesus uses them as examples a lot. Or another author says this, the error of the Pharisee is thinking that he can be obedient to God and still have disdain for people like the tax collector. Because part of the rationale of the Pharisee is I'm fulfilling the law. Ha, 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 right? But part of what Jesus wants us to know is you can't fulfill the law if you don't love your neighbor. And if you disdain people like the tax collector, I mean, you've exalted yourself and you will be humbled. I mean, that's what Jesus says. That's hard. I know it's not fun to get in contact with our inner Pharisee, but it's important, isn't it, for our souls? How about the tax collector? Well, the tax collector is actually interesting. I read several books. Uh, and everybody talks about the tax collector like a combination of the IRS and the mafia, right? Like, they're coming to get your taxes, but not, I mean, like the mafia. And so, again, as some of you know this. Like we're a pretty biblically literate church, but some of you maybe are newer and you don't know this. And so, so you've got to go back 2,000 years ago. Israel is under Roman rule, and they don't like it. And they have to pay taxes to Rome. Romans are strategic, brilliant. And so they go in and they grab people from that community that they're ruling over. Hey, you know how much money is being made. You know what people do with their money. You know where people hide their money. You know the community. So you go and you collect money from your neighbors. So so you send out a tax collector and they go and they collect money for Rome. And, And so all your other Jewish brothers and sisters view you as a traitor because you're working for the enemy. And so on top of that, you don't just give money to Rome, but you overcharge taxes and you live lavishly off of what you've basically stolen from your own people. (laughs) And so they're hated. And you can imagine, you can either pick whatever's better for you, you can picture a tax collector showing up at your home or your business with two gigantic rocks of muscle on each side, Or just Roman soldiers. Time to pay up. I got my force here, you pay or you answer. (laughs) You can think of them as like the IRS and the mafia. And so you got this tax collector and for whatever reason he's come to the temple to pray, but he's aware of all this evil and corruption in his heart. And I was thinking about it, it it's, possible to imagine to, it's possible to imagine that the very phrases he, maybe he's not even schooled, but the very phrases he uses in his prayer, maybe phrases he's heard other people say to him, right? I can imagine him showing up with his muscle and people saying, have mercy. It's been a hard month. Have mercy. My, my kid is sick. My mom is dying. Have mercy. No, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the day for mercy. It's the day for you to pay your taxes. And then maybe people said it to his face out of anguish, or maybe he just heard it. the sinner! He's a sinner! Well, on this day, the tax collector, ah, he looks up to heaven. God, have mercy. God, I've denied people mercy, but now I see I need mercy. Would you have mercy on me? I'm a sinner. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. (laughs) Would you have mercy on me? The tax collector doesn't confess other people's sins. He He confesses his own sins. The tax collector doesn't compare himself to others. He just compares himself to the righteousness of God and throws himself upon the mercy of God. The tax collector doesn't trust in his own ability to clean up his act He trusts in God's mercy and forgiveness and grace. Jesus reveals that the tax collector and not the Pharisee returns home vindicated. Because Jesus again and again presents the theme of the righteous who do not sense their need for God's grace. And the sinners who yearn for that same grace. Now I want to say this, right? So we get into this story, and if we can, if we can move past not wanting to deal with our inner Pharisee, but we get into the story and we see that Jesus is vindicating the tax collector, we start to get excited about the tax collector, right? We like this guy. It's like we like, we like the Good Samaritan. We identify with the prodigal son. We start to like this, right? And I was even thinking, you know, I was even thinking, you, you know, the minions. You guys, have, did you, you remember the original Minion movie, Despicable Me? Right? We're introduced to Gru. He is a supervillain who delights in all things wicked. And in the original movie years ago, he hatches a plan to steal the moon. And he has all kinds of challenges, but he prepares to vanquish all who stand in his way. But then you get these three little orphan girls who want to make him their dad. Right? And their love penetrates through everything. And then we just love grew at the end. Right? We love grew at the end. And I think that can happen with a story, right? The, the tax collector's despised, he's wicked, he's evil, but then Jesus says he's vindicated because he's thrown himself upon the mercy of God and he's trusted in God for salvation. And then we start to like the tax collector and then what do we do? Inner Pharisee's crafty, what do we do? Well, at least I'm not like that Pharisee, right? Oh, I'm a tax collector, at least I'm not like the Pharisee. And now we're in a mess again because we are right back to where we started. You understand All right. Well, let's talk to the two things I want to say, just application-oriented. I mean, there's a lot, and I think there's probably a lot that you can process as we walk through that. But I'm going to get a little bit, I'm going to kind of maybe go in a slightly different route, but still really important. Um, one of the things that I think has happened probably, probably, I mean, just across the world probably, with what we've walked through these last two years, is, is we've lost some connection with our neighbors however you want to think about neighbor, but we've been isolated, uh, we've been wary. Are you carrying a disease I don't want to get? You know, like we've been, we've been isolated, and I, and, I, and I worry sometimes as a pastor that it's possible that we've lost a little bit of our evangelistic zeal. I mean, maybe even hearing the story of, of Lives Transformed that even awakened in you this morning. And I actually think this, this story, I have a friend who loves to use this story to share the gospel, and so I thought. If you're here, if you're new, if you're new to Christianity, it's a great, great day to be here and learn a little bit about getting to know Jesus. But, but if you're a part of Crossview, and I know we care about sharing the good news of Jesus, but maybe if you're honest, I haven't done that for a while. I do think the last two years, I, I I've lost some of the zeal. Maybe maybe as we think about this story together, maybe maybe the Holy Spirit will rekindle. So maybe, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can find yourself in a situation to tell people about Jesus. And one of the things I say often is I would love for us to be a church where we have stories that we can't tell unless we mention the name of Jesus. There's no bait and switch. If I'm going to be authentic with you, I have to tell you Jesus did this. I can't explain it any other way. It was Jesus. Well, tell me, tell me about that. Well, let me tell you about or maybe often what happens is you have people who are in a place where it's very hard, very broken, very dark, and you're there for them. God providentially has brought you there in that moment for them, and, and you are compassionately curious, and you're asking them questions. And maybe you get to the place where you, you, you tell me about your, tell me, what do you believe about God? Tell me about your spiritual journey. And one of the questions, it's not the only question, it might not even be the best question, but it, it is a question that has been used through the years, and I do think sometimes it's helpful because it does kind of change things. I'm, I'm, I'm clearly not talking about sports if I talk to you about heaven and hell, right? So a, a question that you can ask people sometimes is, do you, do you believe in heaven and hell? And, and research right now says statistically two-thirds of Americans still believe in heaven and hell. And I've had this experience, my, my friend who, who loves to use this story, he talks about this too, I think this is pretty common, but if you ask people who maybe aren't churchgoers but believe in heaven and hell, where, where, where do you think you're going to go when you die? Uh, most people will say, I think I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Well, because when I compare myself with my neighbors, I mean, I'm joking, but I'm serious, right? I know I'm not a saint. I mean, I've heard this. I'm not Mother Teresa. I know I have more energy-efficient neighbors, but I'm better than the average. So I don't know when it all weighs out on the scales. I, I think I'm doing better than most. You think? Yeah. I mean, so you can. Well, you know what? If that's the, can, can I share a story? It's a short story. Jesus told the story two thousand years ago. The greatest storyteller I've ever heard. There's no one like Jesus, and I will tell you my experience. Unless you have somebody who's really belligerent, people might not like Christianity, but almost everybody I've ever met respects Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm dead serious with that. I've talked to Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists. For the most part, people respect Jesus. Can I tell you a story Jesus told? i got my phone. Let me just play. Everybody's got a Bible app these days. I'll pull this out. And you read through the story. You can interact with them. Who do you identify with? Do you understand, do you see how this Pharisee is banking on that he's he's just he's gooder than the other guy? <laughs> like that's his merit. He's, he's self-justifying. He's, he's, he's happy to compare himself to other people. Do you see what Jesus says in those final verses? It's not the Pharisee who goes home justified. It is this tax collector who throws himself upon the mercy. I actually think that's a great way to share the gospel. It's conversational. And and, and people, first of all, because what we want to do more than anything in sharing the gospel is introduce people to Jesus. Because Jesus will do things that you and I can't do. Amen and hallelujah. So you introduce people to Jesus. Maybe even get them to read the Gospel of Luke, which is an amazing book, right? But introduce people to Jesus and, and let them deal with Jesus' words on Jesus's terms. I just, I don't think there's anything better than any of us dealing with Jesus's words on Jesus's terms. So I submit to you this story. I think it's great. I think you can also bring in the language. It's language I use all the time. But, but again, life is a gift to be lived. It's not a game to be won. I think a lot of people really want that to be true. Because a lot of people are hustling and scrambling to win some game that they never signed up for. And they're exhausted. And they're tired and they're burnt out. And they don't want to play the game anymore. You don't have to play the game. If you want this gift, this this rich, deep life that will free you from the bondage of your sin, you've got to meet the giver who gives the gift. And his name is Jesus. You don't have to compare yourself to your neighbors anymore. Don't compare yourself to Jesus and realize that all of us fall short. But then marvel at his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. It's good news, right? It's good news. That's good news for you even if you're wrestling with your inner Pharisee this morning. Now the last thing I want to say is that across Crossview, we are not presenting a gospel that is only good news for you when you die. I like to say it this way, and I think it's the clearest in the gospel of John, though, though Jesus will say the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is present, it's at hand, it's near. But, but you read through the gospel of John, and it's pretty clear that Jesus is inviting us into eternal life right now. Not, hey, sign some contract, and then when your life phases out, you get the benefits no no jesus invites you into his life right now so when you place your trust in jesus when you put your faith in him when you surrender to jesus then his life comes into your life right now and his life is what we were made for it's what we long for and it just so happens it's eternal (laughs) that's good news So we talk about heaven being with God forever. Well, yeah, it's real. And you don't have to worry. You don't have to think. You don't have to wonder. Well, I know Jesus now. Of course I'm going to be with him forever. And there's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. So you enter the kingdom by throwing yourself upon the mercy of God and asking for forgiveness for you, a wretched sinner. And then you live every day of your life by throwing yourself upon the mercy of God. And asking for him to sustain you and uphold you. Uh, this is, I, was, I was talking to Jay about this, my son. Jay's in middle school. That's the last thing I want to say. And then I'm, going to pr- I'm going to pray a Jesus prayer that I think we can all pray. Um, but my son Jay is in middle school. He's 13. And I don't know, most of our middle schoolers, I think, go to second service because you tend to sleep in a little bit more. But, but it turns out middle school is both wonderful and horrific, right? I don't know if you remember being with 12, 13, 14-year-olds. There are, are days when Jay comes home, and it turns out someone was immature at middle school. <laughs> turns out somebody was really mean. Someone Jay would call a friend, was, said something just really mean and heartless, and I wonder who would say that. So it's middle school. And so as a parent, I try to comfort Jay, listen to Jay, but I'm, I'm a Jesus follower. And I am captivated by the Jesus life. And I think, I don't care who you are or where you are, if you obey Jesus, it's your best path. I want the best for my son, and the best for my son is following Jesus. So sometimes we'll talk about these immature comments or things that happen in middle school, and I will try to talk to Jay, and I find myself saying this to my son. What does it look like to repay evil with kindness? What does it look like to bless those who persecute you? And here's the thing. Jay kind of gets excited. I mean, he pushes back a little bit because he's 13 too. I mean, I, I'm not presenting my son as the model of maturity in junior high. But, he, but he's compelled. He's captivated by the life of Jesus. He likes it. And so then i will be, oh, oh, maybe I could try that. But I find myself thinking, man, I don't even know if I would do that. And you're 13. How are you going to do that? <laughs> And so I, I have to remind Jay, I have to remind myself, I want to remind you, we have to daily throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. I found myself saying this week today, this week to Jay, I said, Jay, look, what I just asked, what, I, what we just talked about is really hard. That'd be hard for me. It's hard for anyone. If you're going to try to do that with your friends, you need to be spending time with Jesus yourself. Like, you need to make sure you are prioritizing Jesus because you cannot live this life on your own strength. You cannot will out of your own goodness the love of God. You need to throw yourself upon the mercy of God, the grace of God. You need to be filled with the love of God so that it overflows into the lives of others. And so we're going to close by praying the Jesus prayer. The Jesus prayer is not completely from this text, but it's birthed out of this text. It's been prayed for thousands of years. So what I'm going to invite you to do, I'm going to kind of walk us through, but pray us through just as we kind of close this time and get ready for worship. If you'd bow your heads and if you'd be willing to pray with me, I've been praying this more this week. I mean, I pray it every day anyway, but I've been praying it more as a, as a way to remind myself that God is with me always. He's here right now. Jesus is beautiful, and I need to remind myself of who he is and who I am, that I need him right now in this moment. I need Jesus, because it's hard to be like Jesus. So I pray the Jesus prayer, and I pray it, and I focus on every word. Think about what each word means. It's, it's, it's one of the simplest encapsulations of the good news of the gospel. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Pray that over. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So I want to walk through this with you right now. I pray, Lord, and I think about there is a Lord, and I am not him. There is a God, and I am not him. There is somebody else in control, and it's not me. I remind myself of that. Sometimes I get scared by that. I'm not the one in control, so I say, Lord Jesus, and I remember Jesus is the one, and there's no one like Jesus, and Jesus has revealed the heart of the Father, that Jesus loves me, and he's good, he's so good, and I can trust him. Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is not the last name of Jesus, it's his title. Jesus, we're praying right now and we re- Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize that you are the Messiah. You are the one that the people of God have longed for. You are the fulfillment of the biblical story. You are the Savior of the world. You are the one who went to the cross and died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and risen to new life. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, I'm reminded that he has a relationship with the Father. I'm reminded of the Trinity. I'm reminded of the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded that Jesus has always been. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And then we pray this. We pray this together this morning. Have mercy on us. We don't deserve your mercy, so we cry out for it. We aren't entitled to it, but we know we need it. And we're so grateful that you are a generous God and it comes as a gift. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I am a sinner. Sometimes I get scornful and I compare myself to other people, God. I exalt myself. I'm actually inviting you right now because I trust you, Jesus, to humble me. Humble me where I've exalted myself. Help me to see that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of your grace. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. We are sinners. Amen.